0: $12 million a year for this university. Get some facts and go back and see them. I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold. This isn't going to be one of those book studies where we go, here's the top 10 ways that the fossil record confirms Christianity. But that's, that's not what this should be. It's been that way far too long, but it shouldn't be that way. She said where'd she want to go? We all have the same evidence. The unbeliever has the same evidence as the Christian has. So the question isn't whether one of evidence. It's how are we looking at the evidence? How are we measuring the evidence? And is that measuring stick internally consistent? That's what we have to examine. We have to know our measuring stick well first, though. That's, I think, we've missed the boat a lot. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Broadcasting live to you, Shovel Lake Public Radio. It's five in the morning. And we are here to talk about important topics. Skiologians, Skiology, Sola scriptura, and Sola Ski Some people are asking me what sola ski jora means. I just made it up. Okay? There are six solas in the Cedar Skier family. Okay, so big show today, heavy hitter topics. I actually have a lot of topics, so I'm going to try and stay on topic. I made a plan for the show, although my prep work is still, it's kind of embarrassing. But sometimes what happens if I start doing too much prep and start writing things out, then I just, I write like 12 pages worth of things, and then I have to get up and move on to the next thing. I never do a show. And um, I I like doing the shows. I like talking into this microphone. It makes me feel like, you know, the Shovel Lake Public Radio is a real thing. That was my ultimate childhood dream, I think, was to start up Shovel Lake Public Radio. And I think uh, we, have a, we have a great list of shows. Um, the Evening Podcast, which has actually been going since 2010. That's where we play uh, classical music and jazz. And I read news in a public radio voice and then uh, do a short narrative story kind of a la Garrison Keillor. Uh, rave Reviews, uh, we played it first. One uh, one episode was played. Li- oh, I also had to have a guest. Uh, one episode was played live on Bemidji State's uh, college radio, which actually is a real radio station. I mean a radio station. Shovel Lake Public Radio is a real radio station, too, but it's a radio station in northern Minnesota, and I actually had a guest, Annalisa Hushley was on it, one of the greatest radio productions I think that's ever happened, and I had a jazz jazz, jazz music, we played a classical piece, Annalisa Hushley came on, she talked about some of her music, I think I even perhaps played a recording of her um, and she was a local track athlete, f- four-time state champion j- as a junior, and then kind of came back as a senior and repeated the same thing. Or was it sophomore, junior, senior? I don't know. She won a lot of state championships, was a long-jump state record holder, and from small-town Bagley, Minnesota. And then I read a story. And so I get off the air after doing this show, and the next day walk into my trumpet lesson, and I ask Dell, my teacher, if he had listened, and he's like, that was super boring. <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of a great compliment at the time because I sort of was like, that was, that was kind of the point, I suppose. Right. Uh, make it sound like public radio. Uh, but that's Shovel Lake public radio, the evening podcast. We have Cedar skier podcast, right. Sports and skiing and science talks and then ski, uh, skiologians, which is our theology podcast that kind of merges, you know, social conversation with, with a uh, theology topics. I, th- how could we not run a successful business with those three as the big, big headliner shows and Christy and I doing a marriage discussion once a week too. We had the setup in our old house. The studio was great. We had the mixer. We had multiple mics. We had phones, callers, everything was ready to go. And then the Mac broke and we had a new Mac and the mixer doesn't work with it. So we're back to a a solo show for now. I don't know if Christy really minds. She's sleeping. It's 5 a.m., right? (laughs) I'm doing these things. Okay, so anyway, the topics. Let's get in. Skeologians today. Uh, A couple of things on Facebook. I've been responding to my, maybe my only loyal listeners. (laughs) We don't really know at this point. Uh, The esteemed Colin Brooks and a great friend. And my older brother, Tom Cedarquist, who was a feature Of one of my feature writings on the cedarskear.com page. So if you check that out, when I talked about Ben Sathery and Tom Cedarquist and their running careers, that was fun. We did get some views for that. So maybe we have to go back to just journalisming. So those two have posed some questions. And I really think moving forward, that we were talking about uh, God's sovereignty, the nature of human. Uh, the human will, free will, bondage of the will, sovereign free will, autonomous free will, creaturely will, compatibilism, Molinism, all these topics. And uh, fascinating, you know, down through the ages, people have talked about these things a lot too. So I think that's something to, for us probably to humbly admit and come to grips with is through the ages, people have been debating this, going to scriptures, searching for answers. However, one thing I was kind of thinking about today is I do feel like and I don't know if this is fact, but uh, is is the idea that a more man centered right? There, t- there's kind of two. The reality is there's two different different ways people are walking through the world: either a man centered philosophy or a god centered philosophy. That's that is ultimately what it boils down to. And I'm kind of like thinking it, from the Enlightenment. That's where we sort of really embraced a man centered philosophy and all of its capabilities and possibilities around the 1700s, and that Enlightenment. Age sort of, I think, infiltrated the church in a negative way because it sort of preached this idea that you can figure things out empirically, um, trusting your your reasoning and your senses alone. And before then, people recognized that the necessary precondition for reasoning and intelligibility was the Bible, and that wasn't really even that debated. So uh, the last 300 years, I think, and someone should tell me if I'm wrong on that, but. Isn't that kind of a new age of debate for the Christian? Because previously, prior to that, the general consensus was that, oh, yeah, there's a God kind of a thing. Um, and, and in some ways, I feel like that you could point to the fact that people in the 1200s, well, maybe not that far back, but well, I don't know. If, if 1500s, you know, through the 1700s, we're talking like the Calvin through John Edwards and Sir Isaac Newton, those people, their genius was very high. And and I would almost argue that if we looked at just like defining the fool versus uh, not the fool, right? They were not fools back then. And we are kind of the fools by our rejection of God as a society in general. So That is kind of, I think, maybe the starting point where, yes, this is a topic that that we're not the first people to wrestle over this. However, early Christians, I don't think, were like barking at each other about the idea of autonomous free will, because I, I I do believe that it's pretty clear in Scripture that there is a distinction between God's sovereignty and creaturely will, wherein we have creaturely will, and what I mean by free will is we... We, are, we don't have a fully sovereign or autonomous free will, but we're able to choose freely in the sense that we can choose what we want, but that does not conflict with God ordaining all things to pass. So just I, I don't want to like dwell on this because this was a little bit the topic of our last show, and um, I have a plan, and Colin hopefully will listen to this so that he knows the plan because it involves him. So Colin, tune in. That's, uh, the coffee is warm. The stevia is sweet. Um, what I think would be a good idea, since and Colin is a little more of an expert on some of these things than, than us for sure, is if we do like a Zoom call three-way and Colin presents the biblical basis for compatibilism, some key texts, a key summary of that philosophy, and then sort of why is that consistent or inconsistent with Scripture, and then do the same thing for Molinism— uh, because I do think that's that's one of the more interesting, intriguing philosophies that could try and reconcile this uh, God's sovereignty and man's will, um, and I would be interested to learn more. And the thing is, uh, Colin, I, I know Colin knows a decent amount about William Lane Craig, who is a super genius from a philosoph- philosophical standpoint, but I also know Colin personally interests, you know, he's coming from a stance of the authority of Scripture is, is paramount that's our ultimate authority and it will be consistent and so we need to test all things uh based on that even uh, someone as smart as william lane craig is capable of um bringing in either philosophy to scripture or prior tradition that he might not be aware of or unable to put aside uh things that his um his uh, reasoning and intellect are presenting to himself, though we can't trust that. The noetic effects of sin, we we, we can't. And so even, I, I would just like him to analyze William Lane Craig, because I think early in his Christian walk, Colin actually, uh, you know, looked up to William Lane Craig in a different way in the sense that here's a guy who can go into the public arena and stand tall with, uh, reason, reason with the best of them, so to speak, and reason a lot better than the best of them, quite frankly. And, uh, so I'd just be interested for him to kind of present both of those views. And then I will do my best to uh, avoid speaking into the microphone. And my brother who is, who is who who is good at asking questions can present some of his tricky questions on either topic. Um, one thing that he brought up, though, in some of our conversation we had after posting our last show was just about some topic of definitions, and I responded at length to that, so I'm not going to like dive into that. If you are interested, you can go onto our Facebook and see some of that conversation, but I will just say briefly that let's take a look at what we know from Scripture. God is sovereign, okay, and there is no disagreement there uh, between—well, uh, we'll just say, uh, as, as my brother and I have this conversation, no disagreement there, uh, and then— the, the, the thing that I think we know from Scripture as well is that God ordains things to take place, and a third thing is people choose things. So the the th- problem here, I guess, we present is how can this be reconciled, um, and, and I think we have to be, as faithful Christians, We and as iron sharpening iron, we have to have some rules. Our rule needs to be we can't develop an idea that throws out the clear teachings of Scripture, okay? And we need to develop an idea that harmonizes Scripture because we know Scripture is consistent. It can't contradict itself. It's authoritative. Um, and so as we are developing things, we need we need to have that wisdom. And this is where we have help. And, and that's why I like having Colin in here and, and more experts too and who know the Bible at length and as a whole better than we do to go, oh, no, that's not going to work. We can't have that because, you know, we know in the Bible that this says this. Or that's not a proper... Uh, interpretation of that verse because here's the context here's what we need to remember and this is a a better interpretation because xyz i think that's where this sort of conversation could become really beneficial obviously for for us all as long as that that baseline of scripture's authoritative that is our ultimate authority if that's not really in place then the conversation between christian brothers isn't i I don't think really very edifying because it that's you can't really get anywhere. And that's sort of a a precondition to being a Christian, right? It's like, well, you're the type of Christian that doesn't believe the Bible's true? What? (laughs) I love it how in an article I was reading with Doug Wilson, uh, with Doug Wilson, by Doug Wilson, we were not actually sitting next to each other. And he said, made some comment like, you know, the types of Christians that that when they die, they go to heaven. (laughs) Because it's so true in this world today. It's like, Oh, okay. If you didn't get that joke, you're just, you're... anyway, let's move on. So hmm. I need to drink my coffee before it gets cold. So that's sort of this plan I have, and I think it'd be a fun conversation, but uh, I did do some reading in my Wayne Grudem systematic theology book. I skipped ahead to the, to some of the uh, common objections to election, and and these were some new insights that I I didn't. Uh, one of them has a little bit of a taste of what I would maybe call what my what my brother sees in Molinism potentially, and one of them just just presents a different idea that I hadn't really thought of. So I want to just share those here. This is uh, Wayne Grudem's in systematic, uh, systematic Theology, his book, uh, and it says some some of the object objections to the doctrine of election, and one of them is election means that we do not have a choice in whether we accept Christ or not. Okay, and he says, our choices are voluntary because they are what we want to do and what we decide to do. Um, these are just some things I underlined here, so uh, then I'm skipping ahead a little bit. God can work sovereignly sovereignly through our desires so that he guarantees that our choices come about as he has ordained. But this can still be understood as a real choice because God has created us and he ordains us that such a choice is real in short we can say that god causes us to choose christ voluntarily uh to me that seems a little bit like almost a you start i i, I thought right away when i underline it, it's like that sounds almost like counterfactuals you know like a. uh, uh <laughs> Tom Tom could almost pin this guy right. Like, well, what do you mean by that? That's I, I I you know that that aligns almost with with what I'm trying to say. And again, I I think sometimes I misrepresent um, what my brother is explaining because I just I'm not like really smart enough to really understand Molinism. I don't think. But so I apologize if I am. But I thought of you, Tom, when I when I read that. But this next line I think is key. Okay, and I circled it. It says the mistaken assumption underlying this objection. So the objection that election means we won't have a choice whether we accept Christ or not. The mistaken assumption underlying this objection is that a choice must be absolutely free, that is, not in any way caused by God, in order for it to be a genuine human choice. And I'm going to skip ahead because he talks about the puppet robots objection, and he says, God has created us, and we must allow him to define what genuine personhood is, The analogy of a puppet reduces us to a subhuman category of things that have been created by man, but genuine human beings are far greater than puppets or robots because we do have a genuine will, and we do make voluntary decisions based on our own preferences and wants. In fact, it is this ability to make willing choices that is one thing that distinguishes us from much of the lower creation. We are real people created in God's image, and God has allowed us to make genuine choices that have real effects in our lives so that the key thing there is ultimately god is the one who gets to choose and define what personhood is because i think you could say well okay after after all this compatibilism discussion about what you think free will is at the end of the day that just doesn't really sound like i'm being i'm being treated very much like a human and even if that's where you arrive at which i think a clear understanding though of creaturely will it's, it's at least convinced me to go, okay, that's not what I thought at first glance of what a Calvinist would have thought of as free will. Like, I'll admit, when I first kind of dove into this, it seemed sort of black and white of just like, well, yep, maybe we really are robots, but, and that's okay because God's God. But, but I think there is, there's a better explanation there. And as I've kind of seen to understand it, and, and, um, these theologians are explaining more what creaturely will is and how you see it play out in the Bible, I'm not, so far on that end, but even if you were, you would have to agree that as the creator of the universe, God gets to decide what genuine human personhood is. So if that means he's ordaining things and you're choosing what you want, but he's He's ordaining the, uh, the choice, um, he can do that and he can call that genuine personhood if he wants. So I think that's something kind of important. But, but I would say, too, that just kind of in explaining this my own way, and again, I said this for, for Tom on Facebook, but I'll kind of say it again a little bit here, is um, the way I see it, the way I currently understand is when I say free will, I mean that we have, we have a creaturely will, not a fully sovereign, autonomous free will. So I'm able to choose freely in the sense that I'm able to choose what I want. So if I have choice A or B, um, and I, and I will choose the one God has ordained the choice that will take place and I'm going to choose the one that I want both are going to be true statements and it's not going to conflict with scripture and what we're saying is is by free I'm not being coerced God doesn't stick a gun to my back to make me choose one that I don't want and it's not as if I could ever in, in any situation I want to choose A and I'm about to choose A and at the last second the puppet strings come and yank me over to choose B Okay, so what is true is that God has ordained choice B, and I freely chose choice B. And, and I'm using those terms freely choose. It is, it is different than the person who assumes by freely choose, you, you have to define that as capable of choosing both. I would just argue that right off the bat, we know that that's not biblical in the sense that salvifically, Uh, The unregenerate heart is unable to choose God and to please God. That's what Romans talks about. I think Romans 3, can't remember exactly, but um, we are slaves to a sinful nature. So what of that and libertarian free will? I think it's important to note, right, from a biblical stance, we can't argue that— Everyone walking around is on a neutral playing field and they are just fully fully free to choose and able to choose A or B, especially just, frankly, salvifically, because uh, that's what the Bible says. So so we're at least not completely free in that sense. You know, whether or not choosing to go to McDonald's or Burger King, we have libertarian free will. Maybe, maybe that's where we have to debate, but we know that we don't have completely free sovereign autonomous free will because the Bible just quite frankly says it it says that the unregenerate heart is is unable to choose God and and is unable to please God and is a slave to sin and will will choose things according to that sinful nature and the regenerate heart when the Holy Spirit does a work and replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh becomes uh, it's free not in the sense that now you have a will a free will capable of uh, like God, sovereign, a- outside of God's decree, right? You can you can now choose things that are outside of the of God's ordained things to come to pass. No, you're free in the sense that you are now able to choose to to do things that are pleasing to the Spirit. Now, what you want can become things of the Spirit. We're not in the process of sanctification. That does not mean uh, everything you choose is going to be of the Spirit because that's a process, and, and it won't come to perfection until the end of all things. But but it, it's free in that sense. And I will say that um, just walking around, you see this as a Christian, too. Like this bondage of the will is pretty clear. Uh, and and this kind of comes uh, almost full circle back to the discussion of when we do evangelism, uh, presuppositional apologetics versus just throwing evidence at people. Um, the reason just throwing evidence at people does not work is because they have the exact same evidence. Um but they're unable to, <laughs> to bow the knee to God and thus open the key to, to what is the necessary precondition for all intelligibility. They're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. You, you can literally see the bondage of the will um, with the unregenerate person. And it's up to us as um, Christians. To deal with that uh, mercifully, grace, graciously, and uh, I think I, I said to Tom, there's an art form uh, that that obviously must happen in presuppositional apologetics to work as an evangelistic tool, and um, I'm I'm nowhere near that, but I know that it can be misused in a way that's not effective at all, even you know. Uh we know God ordains the means too, right? So don't don't come at me and go, Well, what do you mean it's not effective? Because God's ordained it, it's gonna happen anyway. He's ordaining the means. So if we are the means as his workers to go out and, and uh bring in the harvest, that means we, we ought to give thought, careful thought to how we are are using our apologetic method. But that doesn't mean we give up our authority and we give up God and lose the battle before it started. We do have to go in, um, And and I believe the way the way we we do find this gracious point middle ground is when we speak with the unbeliever, we point out that, okay, look, we both are looking at the same evidence. Right. Can we agree on that? We have the same evidence. We're coming to different conclusions. Why is that? And, and if we can come to the point of realizing that the reason that is, is because we have different glasses on, we have different worldviews. Well, now I think we can, we can change the topic of discussion. The topic of discussion is not evidence. It's examining the worldviews. This is what Lyle talks about in his book, uh, The Ultimate Proof of Creation and Greg Bonson, presuppositional apologetics is so important. And I think this is a discussion that can be had with, with someone in a reasonable way in a gracious and a humble way. And we, we go, all right, here, let's. Let's, let's assume your worldview, and now let's go through it. Let's go through every aspect of it. Let's, let's find out. And, and as a Christian, we enter into that worldview of the, ev- the atheist, the evolutionist, whatever, okay? And we, we play it out, and we sink in the boat because it has a lot of holes, and there's inconsistencies. And we have to know where those are. That does take some preparation, and it t- takes a knowledge of our own worldview. And then we bring them over into our boat, and we show them our worldview. And, and, and then we play that out. And and we pray. This is where the, that's all we can do. The Holy Spirit then has to open the eyes. And when and when we present the gospel as a command to repent and to say, "Look, you are the creature; God is the creator." Like that, that's how it has to be. And 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 you are suppressing that. You know that already, okay? You know that already. This isn't this isn't an argument that I need to convince you of anything. It really isn't. Um, it it is not its an argument about repenting. And and then when the Holy Spirit is at work. Um, that person, the effectual change will take place. But it's our job, I think, as evangelists, at least to me, that seems like a reasonable way that you would go about if, if epistemologically with someone in a way that's gracious and reasonable and deals with the evidence, too. You're not ignoring the evidence because you can go into their worldview, look at the evidence. You, you kind of need to. You need to look at the evidence because that's going to be sort of the mechanism by which I think we can see some inconsistencies um because it points out how dramatic they have to use rescuing devices to comport reality with their worldview whereas in our worldview yes rescuing devices are there right but they they also hold up internally and even just the frame more importantly the framework of their worldview isn't internally consistent and ours is so I do think uh from an evangelistic standpoint um you know that presuppositional method is important uh, it ties in. Did, did I start talking about free will and then go into that? Oh gosh. But anyway, uh, the point that my brother brought up was that, um, free will. We, yeah, we don't need to go to break because we don't have any sponsors. No, we do not Malto meal brought to you by Malto meal mm. Is that good enough? they won't be mad. They'll probably get canceled. If, if people know that they're supporting our podcast. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, where was I? So I do think it's important though, that we define these terms free will. And, and here's one thing. Um, uh, yeah. And so my brother had kind of a problem too. It's like when we talk, I think this is true. I could see how it's confusing is when we, uh, when a Calvinist or someone, a compatibilist, will say, uh, uses those terms like free will, I could see how for him it's, it's posing this problem because in his mind he's thinking free will in the sense that um, you're assuming by choice you mean you are capable of choosing A and B. And I would say free will just means you get to choose what you want. And and if we define it uh, the, the latter, uh, by free will we mean we are freely choosing that which we want. We can... Compatibilize that with God's sovereignty. We see in uh, the story of Pharaoh that God ordained these things. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh was still choosing things. It wasn't like Pharaoh was coming to Moses. Can you imagine this, right? Pharaoh comes to Moses, and he's like, Dude, I really want to like let you guys go and do all these things, but it got these puppet strings, and they're making me do these things that contrary to my desires. You know? No, I mean, so clearly in the Scripture, but that's, a, that's a clear example of, of Pharaoh choosing things freely, and by freely, we mean, again, he's choosing what he wants. And I would say, oh, this is what I wanted to say is when you step way, way back, you go, okay, f- okay, fine, fair. But but could he have chosen A? You said he what he wanted to do is B. He chose B. God ordained B. Could he have chosen A? Because in my view, I feel like if we're going to call it a free choice, he has to be able to choose A. And I would say well no he can't so so from that standpoint he doesn't have a f- totally free will because he can, he will choose that which god ordains because he can't act outside of that sovereignty so ultimately and i like the word grudem uses cause the cause of that choice is on god because god's the one who ordains all things all things are through him by him for him um And so in that, but to me again, like if this is the creator's world, that kind of makes sense. Like I don't think ultimately you could ever say that uh, God would be able to create something that could sovereignly choose outside of God's sovereignty, because then God's sovereignty wouldn't really truly be sovereign. And so for if we, in order for us to have a truly, truly sovereign free will, we can't have God be also truly, truly sovereign. I, you kind of have to have one or the other, and I'm at least encouraged well, when my brother is trying to explain some of these philosophical concepts of Molinism to me, which I'm sure is is unbelievably difficult. Could do we have a skiing analogy for it? You know, it'd be like it'd be like explaining you know, classic skiing to. Uh, oh man, <laughs> I need it. I can't I can't come up with an analogy on this spot. I'll say something and then I'll get in trouble. Um. It'd be like explaining classic skiing to someone from West Fargo, you know. Um, so, and, and I should say this isn't really fair. This is why we need to have the three three pronged um, attack at this, and have Colin and Tom here, and and he can defend himself and explain himself better, um, and Colin can explain things to both of us, and then we can ask tough questions and really get to the bottom of this. But so maybe I, I guess I should just move on from from this whole thing. <laughs> of creaturely will sovereign will oh yeah i remember i was gonna say though uh basically though even from uh, tom from your perspective if you're looking at uh molinism and god uh, my question would be wouldn't ultimately at the end of the end of the end of the day the compatibilist has to say yep god's the ultimate cause of choice b taking place in that person's life Uh, don't you ultimately have to say at the end of the end of the end of the day uh, God is the ultimate reason for for choice B taking place, even in the Molinist perspective too, because he is actuating the world where that's going to take place. Um, and he's responsible for that. And and if you say, well, no, well, then don't you have to kind of, like this is, I think, where the middle knowledge comes in. If you say, no, you have to enter middle knowledge. You have to enter, where is this coming from? Where did that come from? Who is ultimately sovereign here? And if it's not God, then that's scary. Now we're like headed down a cult path. Um, so that that's... To me, I feel like if we're being really, really honest and we want to have this be, this is our Father's world, like, don't we have to kind of at the end of the day say that he's ordaining that? I think you're right. It is kind of, maybe he brought up, you know, could God create a rock too big for him to lift? I think that is kind of a good point. Like, and and God can't lie. You know, there there are these restrictions and I think a logical restriction would be God can't create someone who's sovereign because he's sovereign. And by definition, you can't have two sovereign things. Okay, so let's let's move on, though. I wanted to talk about some other topics. As Tom's probably screaming into his uh, GPS watch on a run, Tom, slow down. If you're going like 5.50 pace and, and you think it's 8-minute pace, that's typical of him when he's out there. Uh, so <laughs> let's plan for that conversation sometime around mid-January, folks. Stay tuned. we got a busy January. Lots of things going on. Okay, so I have the next thing I want to get to, the most unbelievable... Tr- Twitter threads. A couple of head shakers here. Twitter is kind of the place I go to to stay I, I, like I, it, it does. I know it's awful and it's even infiltrated, but I, I can follow a bunch of different characters in the world. Uh, I can follow the James Whites, Ben Shapiro. I can follow um, my liberal friends and Joe Biden and, and see what they're saying. And, and it is helpful to know the trends of what people are thinking. And it, it's crazy how the vitriol on Twitter is just. Astonishing, um, but it, it is a. I think it is the way where you see, uh, unfortunately, where you see the actual news kind of taking place. It it still has not You know, obviously, there's been a lot of censorship here, but but there still is a lot of people saying their thoughts on there that don't get censored. And so anyway, I'm on Ben Shapiro's page, and he shared this just unreal tweet that. There, uh, there's been a couple here you know one of them was um, someone saying that that we should be forcing children to uh, take puberty blockers before they become of age to choose their gender that's crazy that's that's kind of scary you know like I don't even care what what your viewpoint is on that issue I mean to mess around with with um, the human, hormone system in the genomes like that is is nuts i think you know i get the logic to a certain degree uh if i'm going to enter into their worldview but i think you got to step back and go look at the consequences of that um and now where is the one that i had pulled up oh yeah here we go okay ready so shapiro said this is one of the stupidest things i've ever heard which means it will be conventional wisdom in academia by 2024 what he's referring to is Noah Berlatsky says, Parents are tyrants. Parent is an oppressive class, like rich people or white people. And, um, oh man, there are things you can try to do to minimize the abuse that's endemic to the parent-child relationship, but it's always there. And the next person, <laughs> you and the people agreeing with you on this thread are the end of civilization as we know it. And someone, this is going to be the reality after January 20th, uh, I love the. There's a GIF of someone just taking off their glasses, like just they're just so un, they can't even <laughs> they can't even fathom this. Um, but the part I kind of started reading through this right, um, and I got to this this person who their name I can't even really read, but but this this reminded me of the book I read called The New Absolutes. And I'm gonna combine this these this thought New Absolutes talked about the beginning of Planned Parenthood in the nineteen twenties, kind of this idea of like reducing population. I've heard it now, James White talking about um, when he when he speaks of um, what's that? The economic council, the world economic uh, or the global economic organization or whatever that that's talking about how we're never going to own things uh, soon and we're just going to rent stuff and, and everything's going to be environmentally friendly and we're not going to have very many kids. Another like push towards population decrease because they need about half of as many people living in the world as we currently have. Um, so that whole mantra that, that white keeps kind of talking about on his show and, you know, just wait and see this, is what's going to happen. Um And, and and this whole like push basically, well, even the transgender movement, like they, you know, let's kill babies through abortion. Let's let's push for females to transition to male, and he kind of points out. You'll notice there's not a whole lot of celebration and talk, or no one really cares as much about the male transition to female. But what they do care about is making sure that females transitioning to males can happen, um, because now we don't have moms. They can't as long as they destroy their bodies and are unable to have kids. Like that's a kind of a win for this this new world order, so to speak. Um, sorry, I use that phrase because now. I gotta think that probably means something else. But essentially right, we're headed in this direction. And that's one like theory that I would say again, the new absolutes was written in like 1994. So that's kind of crazy that he was already piecing these things together, you know, 26 years ago. And James White now kind of like, yeah, you just wait and see. And, and he, he's not a prophet. He does not claim to be a prophet, but he he just makes like these kind of brash, bold predictions on his show every once in a while. And I was listening to him in March and April, and it is kind of creepy how many of his, well, you know, the next thing will be this. And you know, the next thing's going to be this, that that's like how we would speak. He doesn't say like, and the Lord has spoken to me. Um, It's, it's, You know, just wait, like we're going to need a requirement to travel and and none of us are going to be getting on airplanes again, you know, and you're going to have a passport and and it's like all that stuff is happening. So I really hope this isn't true. talking about just in general, like half the world needs to die. But this person sort of on Twitter kind of bring you like if this is a philosophy that people out there are carrying, then my gosh, it's scary. So here I'm going to read it. This person says nobody needs to be a parent. They create children for their own gratification and it does not benefit the children. Parents expose their children to abuse and work just because they wanted sexual satisfaction or economic incentives. Many parents just traumatize their children. The relation between parent and child is a microcosm of tyranny. Tyranny: The parent creates an additional life to suffer through the world. <laughs> I think that's my favorite line. The parent creates an additional life to suffer through the world and labor just to have a mini-me. Is that what you want when you thought about having a kid? I just want a mini-me. The parent forms their child according to their own values into a particular for their own satisfaction. There's a hint of of truth and calling in that, actually, is that, you know, as Christians, we should raise up children and, and teach them in the way of uh, the scriptures, right, And and... Okay, from the world that looks like that, we're just indoctrinating them with these values and just making them that way for our own satisfaction. No, the Christian is not doing that for their own satisfaction. They're doing that because it's command of God, and it's because it's comports with reality, and and um, it's actually for the children's benefit, so that they are firmly established in truth. I don't get. It. I mean, I'm pleased if if my child grows up that way and can defend the truth and and is firm firm in the faith. Sure. Sure, that brings me pleasure, but that's not the reason I'm doing it. I don't know, crazy. Talk about what a, what a dumb risk that would be to take. But anyway, okay, she keeps going, sorry. Um Actually, I don't know if this is a she or a he. Uh, a parent naturally exploits their children for the value that the child poses to them, even if that is just the continuation of their lineages. It is a subordination of a life all the same. And then there's some other tweets that were deleted, and I don't think we can actually see it, which is unfortunate because there was some dialogue back and forth. Someone trying to say, you're, you know, basically you're nuts. But then uh, this is a response that really <laughs> was disturbing. So a response to someone, same person who's talking here, but we don't have the deleted tweets from the other person. So they say, yes, we prefer to avoid the entire conundrum by not selfishly deciding to spawn additional lives into the world. That's frightening, Right. That push, like, don't be so selfish and bring other life into this world. What if everyone did that? Then there would be no, it would be the end of life. And then again, keeps going another response from an author that was deleted. And then this person comes back and says, See, that is precisely the point. We are obviously motivated in this by issues that you may not understand. But any child of a parent could end up like this. But any parent could, and then it's the F word, F up their child for life, even with the best intentions. This is the point here. And it keeps going. This It gets worse. Okay, two more. But a child that is not yet born cannot lack anything since it does not yet exist to perceive things. Thus, just not bearing a child is a neutral action, whereas doing it creates a risk. It might go well. It might go right. But you don't have to do this to begin with. So I, <laughs> very frightening again, right? If, if a child isn't born, it does not perceive things, so it can't lack anything. But it's interesting, they, they call that a person, right? Like, oh, they're, they are a person there. But then the next sentence saying, just not bearing a child is a neutral action. I mean, I would say not not conceiving then. Once you conceive, there's a person there and they're fully human, you know? And, and the science bears that out. So m- maybe like there could be an agreement on, yeah, sure, if you want to push that no one should conceive any children, Then maybe that's a neutral action because it doesn't create risk. By that logic, that would make some sense. But but you can't say that, um, like having a child in the womb, but then not care, but but not having it be born yet would be neutral. No, once you've gone that far, you're past it. Because uh, yeah, so it might go well, it might go right, but you don't have to do this to begin with. Is it ethical to make that choice when you could ideally avoid it altogether? unless you're being coerced or something, not implicate an additional soul? Does the child not function as some form of toy, as a proxy for your personal desires when you decide to take that risk? Taking risk for yourself is fine and dandy. That is your own agency, but it is not a valid concern that you might... But is it not a valid concern that you might be violating the agency of the yet unborn by bringing them into this? So we are violating the agency of the unborn by bringing them, giving them life. We're creating potential suffering for another soul when there was none before. Well, sure, there's no suffering for an unborn soul. There's also no soul, though. I don't know. And then someone says, so humans should just all die? No more babies? End of the line. So that was a response. And And then this person says, what would be a problem if we were just to peacefully die out? The unborn... I didn't even see this. The unborn do not care for species proliferation. Are we supposed to conscript them just for our own ideal to keep the species going? Of course that might sound insane, but is it really matter, of course, to continue the species just because? Is that call not one just insinuated by our social structures that ache to be perpetuated lest they die out and be replaced by structures that prove perpetuated? We should investigate whether there truly is an inherent need, an inherent positive for species proliferation, or whether we are just just pressured by evolution of social structures to think so. So this person just thinks like as a human race we should just die out and then the earth will just keep going. The same person who asked the question says first, LMFAO. <laughs> you can google that. Second, our species proliferation is not a social structure. It is hardwired by evolution. It happened way before social structures. And this person says, it is not hardwired. There is no values or imperatives. Evolution is just a process, and whatever happens, happens to happen. Well, at least they're consistent with their worldview there. Species proliferation happens because organisms that do not proliferate are replaced over time by those that do, but you don't need to do it. You are making God out of evolution, which is a common mistake. Evolution just happens. Some things stick and others don't, but nobody needs to care to stick. Whoa. Okay, we need like an... Higher show on that. You are making a god of evolution, which is a common mistake. Wow. Someone smarter than me do a show on that. Wow. An animal in the wild does not think species proliferation. They just rut when the hormones kick in. There's no imperative in evolution. This person says the hormones kick in to induce reproduction. That's your DNA creating the imperative to reproduce. And then this person says you don't need to follow it through. You can muster to think that perhaps we should not need to listen to evolution. Evolution does not care whether it creates suffering additional suffering that has no real need to occur but we can muster to care and matt says no we don't need to follow it we also have evolved significantly past base life as well wow and they just keep going oh my goodness those people really huh yeah Okay, so that was the, the crazy, outlandish Twitter thread of the week, and and as you can see, it is it is quite outlandish. Um, do you want me to say the "brought to you by Malt-O-Meal Now, my coffee's cold. Now, crap. Okay, let's move on. <clears throat> now that you see the world's coming to an end. Uh, side note, I've been listening to some Ben Shapiro shows, and they have been kind of funny lately. Don't know if you know, he does impersonations of people. His Biden one is top-notch a couple episodes earlier the week. It was just funny. And um, I don't say this. I wanted to bring up this point. I kind of thought of this, how um, if you're a Trump voter—now, there are unreasonable Trump voters. Fine. Okay, this is not every Trump voter. But I think— some Trump voters and actually a lot of Trump voters, they're able to talk openly about Trump's short fallings, Um, such as, you know, like we don't we could we could mock uh, Trump's absolutism in speech. <laughs> that is the worst road ever. That road is so terrible. I can make better roads. My roads will be the best roads the world has ever seen. Right. It's funny. <clears throat> it's, it's great. And we can make fun of that. And we can also uh, harp on. Trump for being um, not good in marriage, right? Like, uh, as a Christian, if Trump was standing right here, I would I would look him in the eye and tell him that he's sinned by uh, with what he's done with women, right? By having many many women in his life, uh, uh, by divorcing many women, right? I, I could look Trump in the eye and tell him that's wrong by by this standard and hold the Bible up, um, and, and I don't have a problem with that. And uh, if I look, if I think about the other side, I. I I would say that it seems to me like <clears throat> people who voted for Biden do not have that same capacity. Like w- when Biden is acting uh, seniles, is maybe a bit harsh, but but we'll just I'll just use that for simplicity's sake. They don't they don't embrace that for one, and and kind of chuckle, and and they don't they're not really willing to criticize in the same way I think that an honest Republican will criticize Trump. And I kind of came to this conclusion, I wonder if the reason for that is, going back to Trump, let's say he's standing here, and I say, yep, this is a sin, that's wrong, you shouldn't have done that, I don't approve of your decisions um, from a moral perspective. But um maybe that doesn't disqualify maybe that doesn't disqualify you as a leader per se because as a christian i'm going to look at your policies and if they reject christ as lord then you are by kind of for definition 1 john 2 like you're an antichrist right if you are if you are rejecting christ as lord and or making yourself god which not to say trump would be doing that um, oh sorry not to say that this would make every person who rejects christ as lord an antichrist but I think, from a political standpoint, the difference between a, a Caesar and just a political figure is that, and Trump's policies have have been one of whether he likes it or realizes it or not. They've actually been upholding Christ as Lord in certain areas. Uh, a couple of specific ones I can think of. When you're protecting the sanctity and definition of marriage, what you're protecting is the definition that God gave as Creator, and He has, as Creator, the right to define things the way He wants. It's His world. Um, so that movement, the transgender movement, gender definitions, right? If we are um, um, to to oppose or to contradict the Creator in that arena would be to say that, well, God has said they're male and female, but but God, we're going to give you a— that we are the knights who say me, right? And uh, we don't agree. So rejection of the created order there, and, and Trump has mad policies. It's made a lot of people really offended and really mad, which which those in rebellion to to the created order are obviously going to feel that way. Um, so in that area. And then abortion, too, you know, life beginning at conception is what God says as true, And so there's three policies there where I would say Trump, whether he's aware of it, has upheld Christ as Lord by by that definition, meaning the definitions Christ has given and God's given to those three areas, Trump has actually supported. Again, not saying that Trump's a Christian, not saying Trump is doing that knowingly. Um, but that's that is has been uh, the reason why I think Christians we can mock Trump and say yeah he's kind of a he's 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 very cocky he's very boastful he's he's conceited he is um, <coughs> a sinner like us all but he is uh, in terms of adultery right that's one area key point that's really been brought to the fore is we all kind of know about it we're not going to condone that at all and um, at the same time he's not a Caesar. And he's not, uh, and by Caesar, we mean a, a ruler who would say, I am God. We're rejecting Christ as Lord. Now, on the other side, Biden, obviously, some of the things he's going to do right away are going to be rejecting that, uh, the, that, that, the created order. And again, I think Biden, same same way Trump doesn't get that that's what he's doing, I don't think Biden does either. Okay, But the, the general movement of the party um, does realize that, even if they're kind of suppressing that truth, or not maybe fully aware of it, that is the result of a suppression of the God they know to exist, is the necessary conclusion of that would be flipping all these definitions away from what the the God of this earth has has ordained them to be, has defined them, right? They're rejecting God completely. Um, And again, this isn't me saying Trump is the God (laughs) or is the president that God would want, Um, and Biden is the Antichrist. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but I'm, I am saying the 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 reason, I think, uh, Trump voters can joke about Trump, make fun of the of the uh, things about him, but still have a reason to vote for him is because those policies... He's almost kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. I want to bring this up. Like, Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible really thought he was the dude, and then there was a, a part in his life, I believe, if I'm getting the story right here, that he was kind of humbled by God, and he could basically, after this long period of just total totally being you know, thrown into the toilet, he kind of comes out and says, okay, the God of Israel is the actual true God. Now, I don't know, it, it'd be interesting, like, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian there, maybe he did, and I think people have looked into this, but, like, the fact of the matter is he was a very powerful person, a, a lot like Trump, like, he thought he was a pretty big deal, um, but he did not, he did not proclaim, well, he did at one point proclaim himself to be God, but then he was humbled and, and flipped it over, but but then he realized the true God is the God of the Bible, um, just compare that to like Nero, who was the Antichrist, an Antichrist, maybe the Antichrist. Some people would, would say a consistent hermeneutic would suggest he is the beast of revelation in the first century. Uh, very, very, very good, good reasons to believe that eschatology. Okay, so why don't people on, why don't Biden voters, why don't they go... Yeah, that's kind of funny what Joe said, right? Oh, man, that sounds a lot like someone who probably should be in a nursing home and not running the country. Well, I think that's the answer right there. They can't really admit that because he's not fit for office. And now we kind of all see that. To make fun of Biden is to suggest that he's not fit for office. To make fun of Trump is to suggest that he's just a really conceited, uh, self-absorbed individual. That doesn't necessarily mean he's not fit for office, um so maybe and that's like-, uh, that's not good, right like they they can't they can't really go along with some of those jokes because they cut right to the fact that he's not actually fit for office, and that that's that's unfortunate and frustrating, but good news for Biden is he, apparently he had sixty percent approval rating so far as a job as president elect when I saw that story, I was really curious because I thought. What on earth are we approving of? When you're president-elect, I mean, and then I, I, I know I'm not very smart either, so I, I guess, like, that would mean we are approving of his choices for cabinet picks, right? Like, because isn't he kind of just, like, waiting? It's like it's like if the Vikings drafted a quarterback in April, and in June, like, there was a poll that said 90% of Minnesota Vikings fans approve of the job of Joe Bagadonis as the starting quarterback-elect in waiting. It's like, well, he, has, he hasn't done anything yet. How can you only have 60% approval rate if you haven't done anything? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I thought that was an interesting stat. Maybe I'm just too dumb to to make anything of it, but oh well. So almost coming to the end of our show here. One last topic I want to talk about getting into a little bit of exegesis here. So first of all, sorry, I got to refill my coffee. I just want to say that Right now, I'm drinking out of a coffee cup. One of my greatest in the mug collection, the Edmund Fitzgerald cup. Um, hold on. I got this cup when I was, man, maybe 10. And I really, I liked it because it was big. You know, like, now looking at it, it's it's kind of really more of a medium-sized mug. But it's definitely bigger than the, than the average. It's got a picture of the Edmund Fitzgerald on one side and Whitefish Point on the other. So I think I got it on my on our family's trip, the tour around... Uh, Lake Spirit that we did, which I kind of think now, I, I'm trying to think of a good training uh, plan for like like an epic, an epic bike uh, adventure to do now with the Sprinter van with Enoch um this summer potentially floating around some ideas one of them was to just try and bike around Lake Superior as fast as possible like to so to if you're doing like a 16 hour 300 mile days right and make it a a race part of the the intriguing part I think there is it's a it's a course you know that you could say you did the reason I'm I'm kind of leaning against it however is is the fact that as my mic turned up a little too much here hold on the fact, I, the fact that I've already done, I've already gone around the lake. So that part to me is, it kind of ruins it. Like I want to see a place on my bike that I haven't experienced intimately. So the other one was potentially biking the entire West Coast, like LA to Vancouver or something like that. Um, I'd also like to try biking across America. The, the West Coast one is intriguing because you could kind of like go inland as well and hit up Yosemite. I haven't been there even, so I really I, a biking through it would be just awesome. Um, and potentially doing the same thing on the East Coast would actually be really fascinating too. Florida all the way to like Fort Kent, which since I've been to, you know, Fort Kent and Presque Isle, Maine have some deep meaning to me too. It would be really fun to do a trip where I end there. But that, that could take a long time, too. And driving along the East Coast might be a little more tricky. I don't, I don't really know. So I'm kind of planning that out. But anyway, I thought I'd bring up that. I got this Edmund Fitzgerald my, uh, cup, and it's just it's just wonderful. So First John 2, Bible study, First Baptist Church. I want to say a couple of things right now. So whoever listens to my show, Pastor Tanner uh, from First Baptist Church of Leadville, he's just an awesome guy. Okay, he is super intense, super solid. When we're talking uh, from a theological perspective, he is really well read, knows his stuff. But the thing about Tanner that that impresses me is, um, he he is he's really good at being humble and approachable. Like, uh, and and in his witnessing, this this plays out. Uh so so he is the pastor of the church that we go to and next door to our studios and 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 his sermons are you know exegetical um and they're wonderful and he leads our church really well. He's also just a really intense guy like he he just works really hard. So he is I don't know his exact position but he he works at the at the mine and he's like the youngest in his position in the company's history. So He's he's a go getter. He's ambitious. He's capable. He's very smart, and and he is he's pushing himself really hard. And that's something I can kind of admire. I feel like there's a little bit of me and Tanner have similar souls uh, in terms of whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it at the max. If we have an idea, we're just going to go for it. And w- so my idea was, you know, skiology, skeologians and my podcast, and I probably have you know like four listeners a week. Well, Tanner decides to jump headfirst into an online ministry, which basically doing. Videos. Um, he will. Uh, he has a Twitch, YouTube. I can't even a TikTok. All these different accounts. In Twitch, I think is a video where you, you, when you're playing video games, you can like interact with people while you're playing the video game. So you're talking to them, and you can chat, and you can actually post your videos of the game. And Tanner will go on there and engage with with gamers and answer their questions tough questions about life, tough questions about the bible. He basically witnesses in that arena. And um he's really effective. Like he's got followers up the wazoo. Like uh, and so he on Twitch he posts his sermon prep too, which is really fascinating for anyone of all levels, but he has kind of like I don't know his exact hours, but he's committing a lot of hours to having that open platform on Twitch that's a live stream where he engages and answers questions about tons of really hard topics and defends the Christian faith in the process. To unbelievers, to to believers, everyone. And I was just on there last night, and as he was ending, you know, there's like 50 people on the chat, you know, chiming in, asking questions. He's praying for them. It's just really, really cool to see. And I I looked up his TikTok, and I think he has like 95,000 views or followers. Or whatever. he has short little clips where there's like 21,000 views. So. Kudos to the effectiveness of that ministry, and I really think it's innovative, a good idea. Pastor Tanner's really good at it. But I wanted to say for uh, my listeners, too, is the Bible says that we have Thursdays at 630 are awesome as well. He takes—right now they're going through 1 John, and they just read through verse by verse. And so, like, a whole night might, might only cover three to five verses— and it's fun because, like, for me, last night I sat in and I had my commentary uh, pulled up on the computer screen. I had my Bible at the ready, right? And as people are putting in questions and he's talking, I, you know, I can dive in and really try and analyze scripture verse by verse. And we don't always do that a lot. And it's like, this is what Bible study should look like, right? Believers getting together, having a conversation, and trying to interpret the text, using all of the available tools that we have, including each other. Very cool. So you should join us, uh, join him Thursday, even if I'm not there, Thursday, 630, um, Facebook Live, you can find, or if you just search like Pastor Tanner on YouTube, his his pages come up, and his other, he posts about a video a day, and, and they're on, t- you know, 20 to 45 minutes on anything from a lot of the tough questions we've asked, right? Like what about free will? Does God predestine evil? What about baptism? Is it okay to do this or that? Or what about divorce? He, he addresses a lot of topics that are super relevant, porn, masturbation, uh, other sexual sins. Um, just the, those questions that, that we, that um, are hard to answer sometimes. And he goes right in. So cool. Pastor Tanner awesome job. But I had a question because I, I was asking this in Bible study last night. So I have I want to pose this to us and it comes from first John chapter two. Okay. So I'm just going to kind of skip or jump right into it here. And it's starting in verse 20, well, uh, starting in verse 23. <clears throat> Actually I should start at 19. No, I'll just start at eighteen. Okay, so this is the the warning against Antichrist, dear children. This is the last hour, and as you have as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But, they are going, but they're going going show that none of them belong to us. Verse 19 is important, so keep that in your mind if you're following along. That one about, had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but they left us, so they must not have originally ever belonged to us, truly. Okay, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son— no one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Verse 23 right there, profound statement on the Trinity. We keep going. 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. <clears throat> okay, so 24 and 25 is the curse of my question here. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'll read it again, 24 and 25. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. So some questions there. Our study kind of revolved around 24 being this call that we are to abide in Christ. And I did pose the question maybe just cuz it's on my mind from a like soteriological perspective, why does he pose that question if if the elect are going to remain? Why does he even suggest like hey you you should do this like it's conditional? <clears throat> and I think the answer is kind of spot on is again God ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. And so we are called to <laughs> my wife just came into our studio and it distracted me. She's so beautiful. Um so we're called to remain in Christ. And and it, it, it makes sense going back to verse 19 that those who have fallen away never were truly of us, right? is what John is saying. Okay. So, I don't have a problem with that, but then the next verse is kind of where I was hung up just a little because it says verse 25 and this is what he promised us, even eternal life. <clears throat> so, is some of the other translations that just said, "And this is what he promised us eternal life," which seems dramatically different from saying, "And this is what he promised us even eternal life." For the for the for the uh, so there's a question there if someone wants to kind of answer why why it, is there a difference or is what he's saying eternal life right? Because because on the one hand you say, "And this is what he promised us eternal life," or the other one it's, "And this is what he promised us even unto eternal life," right? Um, and so the one thing is, my question is, what is it that he is promising us? And you could, the, the commentary the, the commentary I was looking at say, you could literally read verse 25 as saying, and this is the promise that he promised us. So when I read that, <clears throat> if that's the case, if, if you read it, and this is the promise that he promised us, even eternal life, the promise that he promised us is the abiding in him, that we would remain in him. To me, that that would seem to obviously be referring to perseverance of the saints is a promise. Christ saying, I've called you, uh, the Holy Spirit is upon you, we, you can't be lost. That's the promise, even unto eternal life. So I've promised that you will remain in me, you will abide in me, you will find uh, joy in the relationship with me, all those things, the knowledge of God, that's the promise that I've promised to you even to eternal life. So to me, it's like if you if you read it and you have even eternal life and you have it say, and this is the promise that I've promised you, um, the promise itself that he's speaking of here wouldn't be eternal life. It would be perseverance unto eternal life right? It's like a subtle difference there, right? Not that this like totally matters, but I think it's interesting and it's, it is kind of distinct if the verse had just said, um, and this is what he promised us, eternal life, right? I write a lot like that, the dash, right? Like, this is what I want you to do, run two miles, right? Um, So anyway, that's my question is, is that a correct interpretation that when he says, and this is the promise that we promised you, that first promise that he promised us is the perseverance of the saints, even unto eternal life. To me, that seems like the interpretation that I would I would get from my NIV, and in and in um, seeking out guidance from the commentary that I was using. Um, and so, I didn't really feel like that question was totally answered for sure. I, I kind of left going. I'm not really sure if I'm correct here in that. So that's my question for Tanner. If you if you listen to this, and if you don't, I'm going to present it during our question time in church. That's my plan. <clears throat> okay. We hit an hour. It's probably long enough. I almost, I didn't really get to talking about twenty twenty as a, as a year as a whole. But now we're on the Christmas break, and I'm sure we'll do another ski skiologians episode to kind of recap twenty twenty and and looking forward to twenty twenty one. So we did cover a lot here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Skiologians.